On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Nancy Piercy about her new book, Love Thy Body. We cover topics like gender, sexuality, abortion, euthanasia, transgenderism, and much more. If you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show, as always, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate that is designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today I have the great pleasure to introduce you all to Dr. Nancy Piercy. Uh, I think she has done a really, really helpful work with this book that we're going to be talking about today called Love Thy Body. So I've got to give a shout out first to Brandon's wife because she's the one who first read this book and then said, you guys need to read this and you need to have uh, Dr. Piercy on the podcast. So Brandon goes and gets the book. He reads it. He thinks it's awesome and tells me to go get it. And it's it's really helpful and brings out, I think, a lot of important topics. So I don't want to waste my, your time telling you all about it. I want to hear about it from her and understand from her. So Dr. Piercy, why, why don't you... Before we get into the topic, give us a little bit of background about yourself and maybe what got you interested in this topic. Right. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Um, so my, yeah, my name is Nancy Piercy um, and I teach at Houston Baptist University. I teach apologetics um, and I, I don't assume everyone knows that. I just ran into a student on campus two days ago who said, you teach what? What is that? <laughs> so, uh, apologetics is it's really just arguments for the truth of Christianity, arguments for the existence of God, and so on. Um, and so it's a wonderful topic because you get to study all of the whole history of thought, you know, all of the arguments for God and against God, um, and how those arguments percolate down through our culture. Uh, HBU, Houston Baptist University, where I teach, is unique in that it teaches what's called cultural apologetics. And that means we're looking at uh, sort of the debate over God, not just as it exists in academia, um, neological arguments, but looking at how ideas about God percolate down to more to people through the culture, through, mm-hmm. through literature, art, music, movies, and so on. And... The term cultural apologetics was coined to describe what Francis Schaeffer did, because he was really the first person to say, hey, we need to get out of the classroom and find out how real people pick up their yeah. ideas about God, which is not by saying, hey, I need a I need a personal worldview. And therefore, they sign up at a philosophy class at the local university. <laughs> you and I might do that, but, <laughs> but most people don't. And so Schaefer was really big on helping people to track track ideas when they come to us, not in words, but through characterization in a novel or in a movie or um, plot line or the composition of a painting and so on. So that's what we do at, at Houston Baptist University. We teach cultural apologetics. And uh, you, as you guys may know, um, you ask, how did I get into this? You may know that I actually became a Christian through the work of Francis Schaeffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to school in Germany 
and happened and happened upon Schaefer's ministry um, in in Switzerland, which was called Labrie. And I was not a Christian when I went. And it uh, it took more than a year and a half. <laughs> but Labrie was the first place that I encountered apologetics, where I encountered people making uh, reasoned arguments and logic and evidence for Christianity. And so I was quite impressed. That I, I, had just, I, I was raised in the church, and I'd left, I'd left my religious upbringing in high school, because, precisely because I, I, nobody could give me any good reasons. Why should I believe in God? My, my, my parents, my pastor, the, the adults in my life could not answer the simple question, how, how do we know Christianity is true? That's all I was asking. So Labrie, Francis Schaeffer's ministry in Switzerland was, was, uh, was uh, incredibly impressive. I just had never known that you could make arguments supporting Christianity. And so that has informed all of my writing, in, including this book that we're talking about today, Love Thy Body. Awesome. Well, Dr. Piercy, thank you again for um, giving us some time today to discuss this book. And I know my wife will be thrilled that you joined us. She really did uh, enjoy reading your book. So, and she'll be she was going to be very disappointed if we didn't bring her up uh, on this episode. So I'm glad <laughs> we glad we did that. But what, will you just take a few minutes to maybe give us the the general aim of your book? What are you trying to accomplish in Love Thy Body, just in general terms? Yeah, in general terms, what I'm trying to do is help. Christians get a better way of communicating the Christian ethic to our secular world. Um, so often the stereotype is that Christians are just negative, right? That, that we say, and, and of course, the stereotype is largely true that on, on these moral issues like abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, transgenderism. These are the issues, the sort of cutting edge moral issues I cover in the book. And often our message is primarily negative. It's uh, it's a sin. It's wrong. It's against the Bible. Don't do it. Yeah. And there's something wrong with you if mm -hmm. you do. And in Love Thy Body, I craft a positive way to phrase these issues um, in terms of uh, showing that the Christian ethic actually rests on a very high view of the body as God's mm -hmm. creation as having value and dignity. And I, uh, I think it's easier if we just jump in with an example. Um, yeah. And the cutting edge... The cutting edge issue right now is transgenderism, and, and that's also where it's actually very easy to see that the secular view is on a low view of the body, because transgender activists themselves say your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex, mm -hmm. with your body. And so they are essentially saying there's this huge split between your body and who you are as a person, in who you feel yourself to be, whether you feel like you're male or female, there's this internal sense of identity, and it has nothing to do with your body. So much so that even down to first grade, kindergarten, kids are coming home from school saying, Mommy, this, this is an actual example. A first grader came home from school saying, Mommy, am I a boy or a girl? Because my teacher's been teaching me that just because you have girl parts does not mean you're a girl. And just because you have boy parts does not mean you're a boy. And uh, the reason we know about this case is because the mother is suing the, that school for causing so much emotional distress in her daughter. Her daughter literally said, Mommy, take me to a doctor so we can find out if I'm a boy or a girl. 
So this, this is an example where it's very clear that what Christians are saying mm-hmm. is we should respect our biological identity. We should take our cues, our gender identity, from our body, from our biological identity. God made this created order. God made the physical world, including our bodies. God made, God created nature. And so what God creates is intrinsically good and something mm-hmm. to be valued. And, uh, you know, I sometimes get pushed back by people who say, well, if there's a conflict between the mind and the body, why do you say the body is what counts? Mm-hmm. Transgender activists say, no, no, it's the mind that counts. Well, the answer is that your, your feelings can change and often do. We know, uh, we know uh, from studies that 80 to 90% of children with gender dysphoria outgrow it. Mm-hmm. They, uh, if you let them go through puberty, you know, there's a rush of hormones at puberty. And so 80 to, 90, 80 to 90% of kids will resolve their gender confusion in favor of their biological sex. Mm-hmm. So your feelings can change. But your body doesn't. Your, your body is an empirical, noble, scientific fact, and it does not change. So it's really a more reliable indicator of your gender identity. And that's, that's the Christian message, is that we do respect mm-hmm. and honor our body and the way God created us. Yeah. So, so already, you know, we've, we've used words like split and, and conflict. And I think that gets right into um, something that I think would be helpful to, to lay out here in the beginning. So in the o- opening sections of the book, you talk about the, the fact value distinction and then this two story divide. Um, so if you could explain those concepts for the listeners, I think it would be um, really helpful before we maybe go a little more deeply into the specific issues of abortion and, and euthanasia and things like that, because that's one thing you do in the book is you continue to return to um, the, 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 the two-story divide and how that divide um, relates to each one of these issues. And I thought that was one of the most helpful things that you did in the book. So if you could just talk about the two-story divide and the fact value distinction, I think that would be helpful. Right. So to tie it into what we just talked about, when I say that gen- tra- transgender activists talk about a split or divide between the body and your gender identity. You could kind of picture this as a, um, the metaphor sometimes uses two stories in a building. Mm-hmm. So the lower story is what we know by science. And that, so that's your body, that's your biological sex. And then, uh, but that, that says nothing about who you are. We don't pay, you know, we don't value that. We don't pay attention to that. What counts is the upper story, which is your personal sense of self. So where did that split come from? It really comes from a split view of truth because whatever you believe about truth is going to affect every other subject area. Mm-hmm. So it started like you, you use the, the phrase fact value split. Um, and to explain what that means, most cultures have believed that there is a, um, you know, that there's a cosmic system that's all integrated. There's a natural order and there's a moral order but they're all part of one unified system. And therefore truth is also a single unified system. That began to be, um, that began to be challenged after the rise of modern science. Many people after, modern, after science began to say, no, no, the only thing we really know for sure is what we can test by science, what's empirically testable and knowable, uh, what we can know by the, by empirical methods, what we can see, hear, weigh, and measure. 
So in the West, many people began to sort of chop down truth to just being what we know by science and everything else was just a matter of personal preference or opinion. So what does that do for theology and morality? Well, they're reduced to just your personal subjective private opinion. And so it was um, Schaefer who first, we talked about Francis Schaefer at the beginning. It was Schaefer who really kind of popularized this idea among evangelicals using the metaphor of two stories in a building where the lowest story is what we know by science. And for the modern person, that's what's the only thing that's truly reliable. That's, that's where we have reliable knowledge. And then in the upper story, sort of in this, um, in this attic, we put everything that can't be knowable, that's not knowable by science. And so that would be theology, morality, uh, aesthetics, you know, sense of beauty and so on. Um, and that became a split that sort of summarized as the fact value split. The lowest story is facts, what we know by science, what's empirically testable versus personal values, which are what are in the upper story. And the term values, Christians often use the term values and they don't realize that it originally meant uh, whatever I personally value. In other words, the original meaning of the term actually was subjective, private, what's meaningful to me. Um, and it, this is one of the main ways in which, by the way, Christians are talking past their secular neighbors. We're using the term values quite differently. Hmm. So, um, so everything else in Love Thy Body stems from that split, that fundamental split in the very concept of truth. And, and the reason that's so important is, uh, like I said, we are talking past our secular neighbors because we'll talk about defending Christian values, right? We'll hear people, we hear Christians talking like that without realizing that when we say that, the secular person thinks, oh, these, you know, this is what personally gives my life meaning, but it's just subjective, mm -hmm. it's just private. Um, and so we think we're asserting an objective moral truth, and they think we're imposing our personal preferences, and of course, they, then they resist and say, don't impose your values on me. So it's part of, a, it, it's really perhaps the most key way in which Christians uh, fail to communicate effectively with our secular neighbors today. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, you know, your book, I guess the subtitle is Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And you really do cover all sorts of difficult questions and topics. So I thought it would be helpful just to maybe zero in on a couple of these. So one obvious one that I think uh, probably 99% of our listeners, I would imagine, uh, take abortion to, to be wrong. Um, and, and you discuss this in here because this is, I mean, if you go in culture, this is a, a very viable and lively debate whether abortion's wrong or not. Um, and you said, I think in here, secular liberalism actually destroys human rights. Um, and you start with abortion as an example of this. So maybe you walk through how is it that abortion is destroying human rights um, and how is it that secular liberalism is enabling that? Yeah, that's, an, that's a, good, uh, a, a good next step. And um, it, because this is another area in which Christians are often um, not, not effectively communicating. Hmm. Most of us don't realize that secular professional bioethicists 
pretty much all agree that life begins at conception. There's not much mm. debate among professional bioethicists that life begins at conception. The evidence from science and DNA is just too strong to deny it. So how, how do they get around that then and support abortion? What they say is, well, at one stage, the fetus is just human. You know, we realize it's biologically, genetically human, mm. but it, it doesn't become a person until some later stage. And personhood is usually defined in terms of cognitive abilities, mental abilities, so yeah. some form of mental functioning, cognitive awareness, self-awareness, and so on. So what are they saying? There's that same split between being human biologically, what we can know scientifically, versus being a person, which is defined in terms of inner awareness, mental abilities, and so on. It's You see, it's the same split that we talked about in transgenderism, yeah. in this case applied to the fetus. So, and, and how this affects human rights is this, as long as the fetus is defined as merely human, merely in quotation marks, merely human, it has no rights at all. Uh, it's perfect. It's considered perfectly acceptable to treat it as just a piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be experimented with genetically. It can be used for research and experimentation. It can be picked food for sellable body parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that is exactly how medical journals refer to the fetus, yeah. as medical waste. So clearly, being a human is no longer enough for human rights. So this is what, this is what we need to do in terms of recasting the debate. It's no longer debate about whether the fetus is human because now people, at least among ed educated secular people, they mm -hmm. recognize that the fetus is human. But what they're saying is, so what? Mm -hmm, you know, yeah. that's, if, uh, if, we, if we use our image of two stories in a building, being human is in the lowest story because yeah. that's what we know by science. That's factual. Right. But being a person is in the upper story where it's defined in terms of a certain level of, like I said, cognitive functioning, mental abilities, and so on. And what you find is because the upper story is totally separate from the lower story, in other words, it's not grounded in biological fact in mm. any way, every bioethicist out there draws the line at a different place. How do you know when the fetus has become, has, has graduated from being human to yeah. being a person? Well, which cognitive functions count? And how developed mm -hmm. do they have to be? Every secular bioethicist draws the line at a different place because it's completely arbitrary. So now the secular view is what's private, subjective, and arbitrary. Mm. And it's the Christian view that's saying, no, 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 let's get back to the facts. Let's get back to objectivity. As yeah. long as the fetus is objectively, scientifically human, that should be enough to give yeah. legal, legal protection and, and moral standing. And and some some of the secular views are even drawing that line outside of the womb, right? I mean, because yeah. Singer has has basically advocated, if my understanding is correct, that you know, 
even babies and small toddlers are not, they have not quote unquote graduated to, you know, being a, a, a full person. So they don't have those, um, I guess we, we wouldn't call them human rights, but I guess person rights. Um, so he's at least toyed with the idea that, that they shouldn't be um, protected. And I guess the only reason that that's not, it's just not, it's not palatable, you know, widespread in our society, but there's no reason that it, that it can't be based on, um, what you've already discussed here is that, you know, if they're going to take, um, what they view regarding this two story divide and human and person to its logical conclusion, where does this end? Like, I, I don't know where you draw the line. I guess it is just an arbitrary line. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like a disaster to me. Cause I, I can think of a million examples. You know, I walk outside today, I get hit by a bus and I go into a coma for a week. I don't have cognitive capacities to fulfill whatever it seems that is required of personhood. So why not just, you know, dump me in a river so that I, you know, (laughs) I drown and die. I mean, is that genuinely what the the logical conclusion is uh, of the secular position here? Right. Brandon talked about Peter Singer, uh, who is a bioethicist at Princeton. And he, and he is, uh, you use the word toyed with, He's not just toyed with the idea of infanticide. He has promoted it in writing, in his books. He has said there's no morally relevant line between killing a fetus and killing a newborn. That is wild. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, it is true that he said he has said something like, you know, uh, even three years of age is a gray area, right? Because ho- how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? So uh, the <laughs> The value of reading people like Peter Singer is that they do show you the logical implications of their view. That he doesn't hold back from the logical implications that, yes, if you accept uh, abortion, then you have to accept infanticide all the way up to some point of toddlerhood. You have to accept um, euthanasia. Euthanasia is just same reasoning, mm-hmm. just in reverse. You know, an abortion, you say the fetus is human until it becomes a person. Yeah. In euthanasia, you say, well, if you lose certain cognitive functions, then you are no longer a person. Mm-hmm. And you revert, you revert back to being merely biologically human. Or as the one bioethicist, one bioethicist that I quote in my book, Love Thy Body, said, it is only a body. You know, once you lose a yeah. certain level of of cognitive awareness it is only a body and at that point your food and water can be discontinued your treatment can be withheld and your you can be unplugged mm-hmm. and your organs can be harvested so you're absolutely right the same reasoning is goes across the board and once again you you, you know you notice that they're in euthanasia too they're acknowledging that somebody who's lost cognitive functioning is still human you know they didn't they don't become an alien species they are still human so once again being human is not enough for human rights and that's a a dangerous thing for all of us who are humans because we realize now in the law technically in the law we no longer do have human rights It, it it seems so confusing to me how they can come to these positions because it seems like when I think of a secular worldview or, or they're going to have to deny, or most of them are going to deny that there's anything besides the material realm. So 
if that's all that there really is, if I am just bits of atoms pieced together and arranged in a way that makes me a human, how do they get to that point of saying that I need something beyond my material body yeah, what to is constitute the mind rights? On that view, yeah. Yeah, I, that's one of the internal contradictions. And that's why it's so important to understand the split view of truth. You know, like Brandon said, you almost have to start there. You have to realize that they really are operating on two different levels. And, you know, they're consciously committed, many of them are consciously committed to a materialistic worldview that, that uh, you know, as long as we're looking like the fetus, as long as we're looking at it purely scientifically, it's just a piece of matter, uh, is all it is. Yeah. And then they suddenly jump up into the upper story and start affirming personhood and, uh, and, and you know, human value of uh, the value of life and um, the, the right to legal protection and so on. And you're absolutely right. It's, it is a split mindset. I, I really appreciated. Um, this is perhaps one of the main things I took from uh, studying under Francis Schaeffer at Labrie was he really emphasized this, that the modern worldview is a split worldview. And if you don't get that, you know, people will try to live in, in a sense, you might say some people try to live in one story or the other. The, the scientists will try to live in the lower story, saying there's only material reality. And uh, artists and creative people try to live in the upper story of postmodernism. Uh, but nobody can really do, do that because reality is a whole. And so everyone finds out that they end up being inconsistent in some, you know, in one way or another. Yeah, it seems like when you do that, you ultimately become very, uh, I guess, susceptible to just power grabs. Whoever's in power gets to determine what morality is and what it isn't. I mean, is that a fair thinking about this? Oh, sure. If you're talking about postmodernism and, yeah. and the upper story, yes, where postmodernism is today is saying that, well, it's basically Marxist. Hmm. Uh, Marxism essentially said, the society is understandable strictly in terms of who has the power, who's the, yeah. who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed. Right. And he applied it, Marx himself applied it just to economics, right? Mm -hmm. So it was the proletariat versus the capitalist. But <laughs> the Marxist revolution never actually took off in any of the countries where it was tried. And so there were later thinkers, um, uh, especially that you probably know these names, probably the, the Frankfurt School yeah. was a group of thinkers who said, okay, okay, what do we do with Marxism since it's not actually working? It's not, a, the, the proletariat are not rising up against the capitalists. And in fact, in, in capitalist countries, the, the, the working class is getting wealthier, places like the U.S. Um, so they said, well, let's, let's uh, broaden the categories. Instead of just looking at economic categories, Let's apply Marxism to race, class, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so on. And so that's where we are today with what's called critical theory. Critical theory is just, you know, an, another name for the, uh, what's sometimes also called neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, which is mm -hmm. saying we're taking it beyond economics and applying it to the whole culture. And yes, it does say we there, there is no objective truth. There were only what is knowable by these different communities based on race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and so on. They all have their own truth and everyone believes what they believe because it's what gives them power. Well, as soon as you decide 
beliefs are just a matter of power, then you've given the you've given up the game because you yeah. you're essentially saying we don't we won't have rational discussions anymore. We'll just see who can who can prevail over the rest of society in terms of power. So you're right, Jordan. That's exactly where we are today. I wonder. I, this isn't something that we had talked about discussing, but just as a pastor, I'm thinking through how how to to walk the the church through these issues. You know, we've already discussed abortion, euthanasia, transgenderism, and and do you have any advice um, at the local church ministry level of 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 what pastors can do to prepare their people to to think through these issues? Maybe you have. Um, of course, your your book here, but maybe you have other resources that you think are accessible um, for for lay people, or or just just things that that because at the end of the day, you know, this is these are real life issues. You know, this mm-hmm. goes beyond just the theoretical. You know, this this hits home in our churches. So, I just wanted you to speak to um, you know how how pastors and leaders in churches can um, help people think through this stuff. Yes, what I personally what I personally like most about Love Thy Body, is that it has lots of stories. It has mm. lots of personal mm-hmm. stories. You know, we've been talking at a more abstract level, but the book is not just abstract moral argumentation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially since uh, since teaching at Houston Baptist University, I have lots of stories, especially for my students. But I'll tell you, um, the chapter on transgenderism, for example, starts with a, an extended story of a young boy who had genuine gender dysphoria. Let me uh, pause to explain that there's two kinds of gender dysphoria these days. True gender dysphoria usually starts at a very young age. Today, we're seeing uh, a huge increase in what's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which means these are kids who seem perfectly normal until the teenage years. And and it's especially girls. The, The numbers are far higher right now for girls than for boys. These are girls who seem to be perfectly happy with their female identity uh, from the time they were young, but then suddenly in um, as teenagers began to identify as the opposite sex. Um, and, and, and we can talk about more about those, but I'll start with Brandon. Uh, well, not, not you, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> but it, the, the story, <laughs> the story of, uh, the the young the little boy who had gender dysphoria and I in my book and I named him Brandon um, had clear gender dysphoria from a very young age before he was even walking. Yeah. His uh, his babysitter told his mom he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he's sweet and compliant and gentle and cooperative and the things we normally stereotypically associated with girls. When he was in preschool, every day when his mother picked him up, he was playing with the little girls Mm. instead of the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents repeatedly, weeping and saying, I I don't fit in with the guys. I think the way girls do. I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. And by his teenage years, by 14, he was... um, searching the internet for sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made it clear that they loved him just the way he was. Mm -hmm. 
that it was perfectly acceptable to be a gentle, sensitive, relational boy. It did not mean he was really a girl, which is the message that pe young people are picking up from the culture today. And I had a, I had a friend who was a former homosexual and he said, um, when I was young, I liked music and art and my father was baffled and tried to toughen me up by pushing me into more traditional masculine things like sports. Brandon's parents did not do that. And I think that's important because this is a common, I think a common mistake, what I've heard from parents of uh, gay or trans kids is um, they first try very hard to push them into being more gender conforming. And Brandon's parents just made it clear they thought they, he was fine just the way he was, but he was a boy. Uh, and they took him through things like the uh, Myers-Briggs personality tests, showing that it's perfectly okay for 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 boy to be at the gentle, the gentle, personable side of the spectrum, just as it's okay for a girl to be at the more assertive, more rational side of side of the mm -hmm. spectrum. You know, it's okay for both of them. They took him through the uh, gifts of the spirit, you know, uh, prophecy and teaching are not masculine as you and I might think. And mercy and service are not feminine in scripture. Uh, scripture says that the Holy Spirit distributes them to each individual as he chooses. So um, by affirming him, they the, the good news is he finally decided not to go for surgery, not, for, not to go for puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgery, the whole shebang. He said, it would, not, it would not give me what I want. It would not make me a girl. You know, every cell in your body has a sex. There's a, there's a well-known um, TED talk out there by a cardiologist. It's called His and Her Healthcare. And the most famous line out of this TED talk is, every cell has a sex. Hmm. So you hmm. cannot... You cannot change every sex in your body, which means you cannot really change your sex. And, and that's what this young man, Brandon, came to realize. And he will always be somewhat gender nonconforming. You know, he's, he is not your typical macho stereotype. Oh, that's another thing his parents told him. He, would, he felt very pressured to live up to these masculine stereotypes. And his, and his parents would tell him, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. And Brandon has told me that the worst place is the church, mm. that the stereotypes are the strongest in the church and Christian circles. And so this is your question about the church. I think the church needs to um, be more intentional about reaching out to kids who don't fit the stereotypes and letting them know that's okay because they are huge targets right now for the secular culture that's you know, it's looking at boys who are who are on the gentle side of the spectrum and saying you're really a girl and even more in terms of sheer numbers it's going after girls who are maybe more masculine according to the stereotypes and saying oh you're really a boy you know you you will feel much better you'll be much happier if you come out as a boy, and and if they do, of course, as you know, probably they they get a celebration, they get a parade, they get they get affirmed. 
the public schools make a big deal out of them and tell them how courageous and authentic they are and how wonderful it is that they found their true self. So the church needs to really get out ahead of this and say, we need to maybe give extra support to the, these kids who don't fit the stereotypes and let them know God has made them the way they are. And oh, here's another thing that Brandon's parents would say to him uh, because he was on the gentle, sensitive side of the spectrum. They said, maybe God has gifted you for one of the caring professions. To be a psychologist or counselor or healthcare worker. So they would find ways to say, look, God has gifted you this way and for a purpose, a good purpose. Yeah. So that's the message that churches need to get across. That's very helpful. Thank you so much. And and you mentioned, you know, Jordan, I'll let you ask a question in just a second. Sorry, I'm not trying to. <laughs> but, um, but when you brought up the book, you know, and how there's a lot of stories in the book, um, what I really did appreciate that. But one of the, one of the things that I appreciated most about the book, just for, for all the listeners, if you're thinking about buying it, is is how well you you weave kind of in and out of, you know, science and psychology and Bible and church history. And then you're back in the Bible and back in science. And, and it's, it's done really, really well. So, um, it's not just, you know, all Bible. It's not just all philosophy, all science. You, you kind of move in and out of those so well um, that it is really a, a well-rounded approach to, to these difficult issues. So I um, just wanted to give my personal um, promotion for the book there if I didn't get a chance to later on. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So for those who listen, we do, we will, we'll put the link to the book in, in the show notes so you can just click it and go get it yourself. Um, Robert George has a commendation on the big on the front that says terrific new book. And I love Robert George and whatever he says is good is obviously good. So there's three commendations here. Uh, <laughs> Mine's not as important as Robert George's, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the book, I think you ultimately say that your view of science or nature ultimately drives your ethics. So maybe you talk a little bit to the, that connection more specifically. I know in a, in a lot of this, I mean, it's all connected. You know, uh, the examples we're using uh, are, are talking about these types of things, but maybe we just speak to that specifically, this science and nature driving my ethics. Good. Yeah. I'm really glad you hit on that before we end. Um, I, I brought that up in particular in relation to homosexuality. So that's a hot button issue we haven't talked about, talked about yet. So let's do that. Um, because there too, the, what that issue is, do you respect the body? Um, let me put it this way. Even my homosexual friends will agree that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, Males and females are counterparts to one another. Yeah. That is how the sexual, the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity then is to contradict that design. Is to say, why should I take my identity from my body? Why should my moral choices rest in any way, or be influenced in any way by my biological sex? Uh, we have to help people to realize this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. That it's Christianity that actually says, no, we have you, we have a higher view of the body. We want, we want to help people live in accord with their biological nature as God created it. We, we want to live in harmony with our body. We don't want to split between our mind and our body. Yeah. 
And uh, how does nature fit in? Because our bodies are part of nature, ultimately every ethic depends on your view of nature. And so the, the heart of the, of the issue is, is, is nature and therefore our body a product of blind material purposeless forces? And I'll actually give you an example of a prominent lesbian who makes this argument. Uh, her name is Camille Paglia. And uh, some Christians like to read her stuff because she's a bit of, icon of an iconoclast, even though she's a uh, feminist and a lesbian. She, um, is she, she Lutheran? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm I, thinking about I'm thinking about somebody else. Sorry. You're thinking me. about yeah. You're thinking about the pastor in like what Colorado oh, or something. Or something. Oh, I know. okay. Sorry. I know the wrong you, person. I know who you're thinking of. I forget her name, but no, I think uh, Camille Paglia. Uh, that's an Italian name. Uh, so she's I probably of the Catholic background somewhere. Yeah. Um. But um, but she, so she 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 rejects the typical feminist take that sex is just a social construction. She said, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. So then you ask, well, how do you defend being a lesbian then? And here's how she put it. Well, if nature made us male and female, why not defy nature? That was her word, why not defy nature? And then she goes on, and this is a direct quote, fate, not God has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Hmm. So the, to catch the logic, the logic is that if nature is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, then it has no intrinsic purpose yeah. that we are morally obligated to respect. And so that really is the heart of this debate. Is, hmm. is, the, is nature a product including our bodies, is nature a product of mindless, purposeless forces, in which case Camille Pogli is absolutely right. Yeah. Why shouldn't we do what, what, whatever we want with it? Or are, is nature a product of a loving God who invests it with his purpose and his meaning, and therefore we will be happier and healthier when we live in accord with his purpose, when we live in harmony with his design. And notice that, um, again, I'm practicing for that, uh, positive language, right? Live in harmony with his design, live in uh, coherence with our biology, respecting our biological nature. Christians need to be practicing this kind of mm -hmm. positive language um, so that people can see that the Christian ethic is actually based on a high view of the value and significance mm -hmm. of the human body, which is why the book is titled Love Thy Body. Yeah, that's good. And, and I and I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of telling a story. You know, we need to think that, you know, we have a more compelling story to tell about reality and, and who we are rather than just thinking about, you know, we talked about earlier as, as merely just a list of do's and don'ts. You know, like we, we have something, you know, our story of reality is is more beautiful and more compelling than than these other secular stories that we've been hearing. And I don't think a lot of Christians, at least in my circles, I don't think they think about it in those terms. And I've come to think more re recently that, that maybe that's a more helpful way to go about it. Um, you know, when we're having these conversations with unbelieving family, friends and neighbors. But that was just a side note. Sorry. Well, that's true. And, and you're right. That's why I tell a lot of stories. Yeah. In, in Love Thy Body. 
Um, and uh, it says one homosexuality. That's one of actually one of my favorite stories. It's a extended story at the beginning of that chapter. Um, it's a story about a young man named Sean, who was exclusively attracted to the same sex when he was growing up, and uh, but today is married and has three children. And what was particularly interesting about his story was that uh, he grew up in a quote gay affirming family, and he and attended a quote gay affirming church. So he was his change was not driven by by guilt or shame. He thought there's nothing wrong with being gay, uh, which is an, uh, unusual because most people assume that if you are a former homosexual, if you move away from it, that you're driven by self-loathing and shame. That's that you know that's a typical narrative. Yeah. So, but if it wasn't guilt and shame, what was it? And Sean says. Um, Sean said, I stopped defining myself by my sexual feelings hmm. and started defining myself by my physical body because my physical body, like I said earlier, feelings change, right? They're more ephemeral. Mm -hmm. If he said, I decided that my, I should take my identity from my body, my male body, it was clear that God had biologically designed me with the body to interact sexually with a female. And I decided to take that as my main source of identity. And he said, when I did that, he said, I, was, I wasn't trying to change my feelings because, you know, that doesn't usually work. <laughs> he said, but when I took my, based my self-identity on my body, oh, here's how he put it. I decided to um, acknowledge, here's the quote I have in front of me. I, I decided to acknowledge what I already had instead of trying to change his feelings. Mm -hmm. What do I already have? Is a male body as a good gift from God. Mm -hmm. And eventually my feelings started to follow suit. So here was a, 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 a wonderful example. By the way, he's a Christian ethics professor now hmm. in, wow. in London. Um, so here's a, a great example of somebody who um, whose change and his sexual orientation came about precisely because he chose to love his body, to respect his body mm -hmm. as a good gift from God. And that's, the, again, that's the message we need to convey. Yeah, that, that's helpful. It seems like, I don't know why, uh, the church, at least from my experience, has not emphasized the body in those type, types of ways. Do you have any comments or thoughts on why that might be? Well, I do, but um, uh, but thinking of stories made me think of one more. Yeah, I, I'll tell you that one first because it shows that even secular people are starting to see that the main thing at issue here is your view of the body. Mm. Um, this was an interview that came out after my book, so it's not in there. But yeah. it was a very secular liberal website, and it featured an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years. She had transitioned at age 11, and that at age 14 reclaimed her identity as a girl. And I love the way she put it. She said, um, the turnabout came when I realized, quote, it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought this would have been a great quote for a book title. <laughs> <laughs> love thy body but even secular people are starting to see that especially with the transgender issue that 
it's become almost unavoidable. They're starting to say uh, that transgender ideology expresses body hatred. You'll see that phrase now. I saw it just yesterday on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, that this is body hatred. So how is it that um, that it's taken a while for Christians to figure this out? This is your question, Jordan. The reason is that um, the Christians have been influenced by by non-Christian thought. You know, biblical the, a biblical heritage says the material world came from the hand of God and is and it is basically good that it is fallen, but that does not reverse. That does not totally wipe out its original goodness. It's it's like a you know when a masterpiece of, of art gets um, gets defaced. You know, the Mona Lisa, somebody defaces it. But you can still see the beauty that was originally there. And that's how uh, uh, the Christian worldview treats the created order. It's fallen, but you can still see its original goodness. And this was, um, if you go back to the early church, this was a major part of its conflict with the Greco-Roman world, with the ancient world at the time, because Christianity was born into a culture that had that also denigrated the physical material world, just like modern secularism does, though for very different reasons. Uh, the early church faced philosophies like Gnosticism, yeah. uh, Platonism, Manichaeism. Remember, Augustine was a yeah. Manichae. And all of these isms treated the physical world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction, and therefore yeah. evil. Plato actually called the body the prison house of the soul. Yeah. And the goal of salvation was to escape the body and, and the whole material realm and, and ascend into higher realms. So Christianity had that's what Christianity had to stand against. And it said, uh, Gnosticism even taught that the world was a creation of a low-level deity. Gnosticism mm-hmm. had several levels of deity, and it was the lowest one, who was actually an evil god, who created this world, because no good god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. So Christianity said, no, no, no. It was the ultimate supreme god, who is a good god, who created this universe, mm-hmm. and therefore it is intrinsically good. And this is one of the arguments that the church fathers had to make. But the second argument they had to make, which was actually a greater scandal, was the incarnation, was the idea that that same supreme deity had actually entered into the physical realm and taken on a physical body. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And then when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, he did a... Escape the physical realm, we might say, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back yeah. in a physical body. Yeah. To the ancient Greeks and Romans, this was not spiritual progress. <laughs> no one, you know, no one wants to come back to the physical realm. Hmm. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the idea of a physical resurrection was out of foolishness to the Greeks. And at the end of time, what's going to happen? God is not going to scrap the material realm as though he made a mistake the first time around. He's going to renew it and restore it, creating a new heavens and a new earth. 
and you and I will be in that new earth in a restored physical body. So from the beginning, the Apostles' Creed has affirmed the resurrection of the body. Yeah. That's stunning. Uh, I, I was telling a, a secular friend about this, and she said, what? All the way back to the Apostles' Creed? <laughs> Christians have been teaching a high view of the body? That's so counter to what most of us yeah. think. Mm -hmm. But what, So the message we need to get across is, there's nothing like this in any other religion or philosophy. Christianity teaches such a high view of the value and dignity of this world that we should just be overflowing with excitement. You know, mm -hmm. this, that we should just overflowing with, this is good news. You know, good news doesn't start with Jesus died for your sins. Mm -hmm. Good news starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And therefore, your life has intrinsic value. Mm, that's awesome. That's that's really helpful. I I mean I think your book is helpful. I think this has all been really helpful. So thank you, number one, for coming on to talk to us. Uh, for those who've been listening, Nancy has a website. Well, it's nancypiercy.com, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can get on there. You can find all of our books, uh, different things, links links to all of them. You know, you you've got books called Total Truth, Saving Leonardo, The Soul of Science, all sorts of interesting books that I think uh, a lot of our listeners would probably be interested in if you are unaware that these exist. Uh, we commend you to go check it out, go explore, go find some stuff, uh, go, go, go get yourself a copy of Love Thy Body, read it, um, and use it to help uh, your own church members. So Nancy, thanks, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. This has been really, really great. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It's been awesome. Uh, we love having all sorts of different people, and I think you're, you've been doing really good work here. So I'm glad we were able to, to promote it to our own little audience that we have. So for those who have been listening, uh, you, you know that you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.